0: This morning, while we were singing that first song, it reminded me that sometimes the loneliest place on earth is when you're the slide clicker. <laughs> so, I don't know who you are this morning, but my heart goes out to you. That's, when, when Rachel and I were newly married, this was back when we were working at First Presbyterian in Dothan, we still had the overhead projector with the, you know, that you'd have to lay the sheets on there, and I was always the sheet guy. And there were some Sunday mornings where I would be sweating it because the sheet would start slipping off the projector, and I didn't want to stick my hand up in the middle of it. But um, so, we love you, slide person. <clears throat> Thank you for serving in ways that most of us wouldn't dare. Um, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter forty-three this morning. As you know, that on Communion Sundays, or maybe you didn't know, but on Communion Sundays, I've been taking different iconic passages, things that we've, that we've heard and read for, for years, perhaps, and, and maybe even in some instances, can quote from memory. And so often, the rich truth of these passages, uh, they kind of become lost on us because it becomes so familiar to us. We've, we've looked at Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We looked at Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. We looked at the parable of the prodigal son, and now we're back in the Old Testament looking at Isaiah 43 this morning. This morning, because if anyone has spent any time in Christendom, you've come across or had someone quote to you Isaiah 43. Maybe, maybe you've been going through a struggle in your own life. Maybe you have dealt with some sort of adversity, and someone Has reminded you of Isaiah 43: when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you, and when you walk through the fires, you'll not be burned. And sometimes we as Christians can hear that, and though we wouldn't verbalize it this way internally, we're like, well, yeah, I know that. And I think sometimes we have to question ourselves: do you? Do I? Do we? Do we really know it? Is it something that still has meaning for us? or is it a nice platitude that we quoted each other that has no teeth anymore well let's pray that it's not that let's pray that we don't allow god's word to just slip into nice platitudes that have no teeth so i think it's good every so often to come back around to these familiar passages and be reminded why did they become iconic in the first place they became iconic because of the deep rich truth that is conveyed in these passages And so this morning, we're going to look briefly in in anticipation of the supper that we will take here in just a few moments together, in anticipation of what Christ has done for His people. We're going to look at Isaiah uh, 43 this morning and be reminded of one of the beautiful truths of Scripture that reminds us of who God is, what God does, and why that is supremely important. So, without further delay, let's turn our attention now to Isaiah 43. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of this paragraph. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So ends the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning with thanksgiving in our hearts regarding your word and its truth and just the rich beauty that lies therein. Be with us now. Minister to us mind, body, and spirit that we might be reminded of the rich truths that Isaiah communicates here. Oh, Father, renew us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, when it comes to passages in Isaiah, of course, Isaiah's writing his prophecies approximately 700 years-ish before the coming of Christ. And of course, Isaiah being one of the more academic prophets that we have in the Old Testament. So, if you were to gauge how hard a book is by the style of Hebrew written, Isaiah would be the, probably the hardest in the Old Testament. Some might argue that Job is, because of how old the language is, Isaiah was an academic, and he wrote as a prophet to Israel to speak of primarily of God and His judgment, God and His work among the nations, but also to give us some of the clearest uh, prophecies about the coming of Jesus, about the coming of Christ, who would come around 700 years later. Where we find ourselves this morning is we have parachuted in, into the midst of the book, into the middle of it. And Isaiah has is kind of been talking about judgment. He spends a lot of time in this book talking about judgment, judgment on the nations, judgment against Judah, judgment against Israel. But he also spends a lot of time in this book talking about the salvific, that is the saving purposes of God, that God's primary motif among His people, His, the, 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 the primary position that He holds while it is judge, yes, it is Savior, so it should not be lost on us that some of the clearest prophecies about Jesus come from Isaiah, the one who wants to highlight the salvific work, the saving work of God, primarily through Emmanuel. We sing about Emmanuel this time of year, Oh come, O come, Emmanuel. That principle comes from the book of Isaiah, a literal Hebrew. It's just a transliteration of a Hebrew word, im, with. El, God. And so you put a a pronoun on the end of that em, with us, God, or God with us. And so Isaiah's purpose is to talk about God in a very personal, saving, present way. And so this passage this morning, the teeth of this passage is not God standing at a distance saying, I will throw a line and pull you out did you catch the refrain in here? I am with you. I am your God. I am your Lord. I am with you. That's God's message to His people in exile. That's God's message to His people in in overwhelming floods. That's God's message to His people in consuming fires, that I am with you. And so when we think about a truth, so one of the, I think a primary truth, and my main idea here this morning is that the covenant compassion of God really does deliver His people. And I'm using covenant compassion on purpose. God does have compassion on the world in the sense that He created it. The world is not destroyed, so in some senses God's compassion reigns. But there is a unique covenant compassion that God has for His people. We are uniquely loved. We are uniquely rescued. We are uniquely preserved in a world that is dying, that is wasting away, that lives under a curse. So we, as people of God, in God's covenant, see, we live in a curse-filled world as those who, on whom the curse has been lifted. Now, you might ask, well, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Does that mean we don't die? Well, of course, our bodies die, but it means that we have eternal life in Christ, that that becomes merely a transition for us into the next world or into the next phase of God's plan. So there is a, there's a hope, but I want us to understand, and I've talked about this concept of hope many times here at the chapel, so we do have a hope, but I always like to preface or describe that hope with the word confident. It's not just a hope. Maybe this will happen. Maybe we'll get what we want. Maybe we'll evade. Uh, you know. Maybe we'll evade deterioration and rot. No, no, no. There's a confident hope in Christendom that reminds us. I don't just hope as in it might happen in Christ. I hope Christ is true. His word is true. His salvation is real and thorough. And it reaches as far as the curse is found. And so what Isaiah 43 expresses for us are two things that he kind of teases out. God's ownership, you are mine, that's what he says, and God's love. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Beloved of God, we understand love in that capacity. There are people that we love in general, and then there are people that we love by name. I love God's people. Rachel, I love. Rachel, I live with. I live for. I, I give my life with and to and for, however imperfectly. i I'm Joanna sitting right there. I do the same thing with her. I love Joanna. I love you. But then there are some people that I love by name in a very unique way. And so we understand that God's love for his people is unique. And lest we make God an impersonal deity, it's personal. He loves us as persons. And that's very different from, say, Islam, where you have Allah, who is so sovereign, He cannot be concerned with the personal lives of those who worship Him. So as we're looking at this, we're looking at God's care for us. So when we, when we read these seven verses here as they stand, we get a picture of what does it mean to be under God's divine care. Well, God outlines, Isaiah outlines for us exactly The how and the why God cares. He tells us how He cares. He redeems us. That's how He cares. Why does He care? Well, because we are His. We belong to Him, body and soul. That's what the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism gets at. What is my only hope in life and death? My only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. It goes on to say that we belong to Him, body and soul. And so this divine care is laid out here. So how does he begin? How does Isaiah start this? But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. Why does he start with this but now? Well, he's changing directions a little bit. We don't have time to look at the whole previous paragraph, or the whole previous chapter, rather. But if you look at the previous chapter, what Isaiah has been doing is laying out the judgment, I mean, you can just look at verse twenty five and see, so he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle, it set him on fire all around, but it, but he did not understand it. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart as God is talking about life he 's talking about israel 's failure to see and, and see what God was doing to hear god 's voice, and so he 's laid this out, and so isaiah forty three stands as a transition in thought. So yes, God's judgment is real. God's wrath is real. God's wrath is even real for His people. But now, Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, He who created you, i.e., who's personally involved in your life, who formed you. Think of a sculptor forming a statue or a bust like it's an intimate process as he or she uses his or her own hands to bring this thing to life. That's the notion that we get from God here that God is speaking in the context of judgment, in the midst of trial, this is God's declaration to His people. Life is going to get hard for you. The exile is going to be hard for you. When you walk through fire and flood, what is our hope? Well, it begins, He says, "Thus says the Lord. Who is it the one who created Israel? The Lord. Who is the Lord? This is Yahweh. Why is that name significant? That is the covenant name of God. That is the name God gave Moses. That is the name that declares, I am that I am. I am constant. I am eternal. I am your God. This is the one who declares to his people that I am with you. Who is the Lord? He's the God of the Exodus. Who is the Lord? He's the one who created and redeemed his people. Who is the Lord? He's the one who walks in love and mercy and compassion and faithfulness with Israel. Despite her lack of fidelity, he continues to pursue. Who is the Lord? He is that hound of heaven that says, whether you like it or not, I will love you, I will pursue you, I will catch you, and I will draw you back in. So often we like to think of God, and and I've heard people say it, well, he's the gentleman who'll open the door, but he'll not usher you in. Hogwash! If God doesn't capture us and and bring us into the kingdom beloved of God, we are not coming. We need God to pursue, to hound, to go nope, nope, nope. How many times have we done that with toddlers? Maybe some more than others. Some kids are generally more compliant, but the ones who aren't, you feel like a broken record. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And why do we do it? Why? Not because we are glutton for punishment and we love just repeating ourselves, because at the end of the day, we understand as those who are in leadership and authority that we love them enough to bring correction. We're trying to get them on the right path, and we know that in certain stages, if we don't choose it for them, they're not going to choose it. God understands the nature of humanity. He understands that His pursuit is everything. And without His pursuit, beloved of God, we have nothing. Fear not, He says. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. There are no better words in Scripture than that right there. He's created. He's formed. God has the power to create, and He has the love and the compassion to form and shape His people. As I said a moment ago, what is this getting at? That He's intimately involved. He's not aloof. He doesn't stand at a, at a, at a distance. He's not the deistic clockmaker who winds the clock in motion and says, now figure it out. No, 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 no. He walks with us He pursues us. And I love this redemption language. It's right in verse 1. For I have redeemed you. Not you redeemed yourself. Not you were redeemed by Baal. Not you did enough to make me love you. He just says right out of the gate, I'm the one who redeemed you. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you from bondage. I'm the one who lifts you up out of sin. I'm the one who raised up judges to deliver you. I'm the one who raised up Samuel. I'm the one who raised up David. And I'll be the one who raises up Jesus. That's God's consistent message. That's why this word redemption, it's, it's an accounting term, and it does mean to buy back. When we redeem something, we are buying it back. We are, we are, are, are expressing that it has value, value enough that we are willing to take it and buy it back. We're paying the price for that thing. God redeems His people. He gives us this this right here, for I've redeemed you, and we understand by means of the New Testament that redemption costs something. It's not free. It costs something. And of course, that ultimately comes through Jesus. So when we think of Isaiah 43, it should compel us to look at the cross. How has God redeemed us? By means of Jesus. But then he gets to what is primary in this passage? When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. So I want you to notice something. He does not say, if you walk through the fire or if you walk through the water. He says, When? This is not a matter of if you will. It is a matter of you will. And when that time comes, when you walk through trial and hardship, I am with you. That's what he says. I am your Emmanuel. I am with you. I am the God who is with you. I'm not far off from you like Baal. You don't have to come into my temple to wonder if I'm with you. I'm with you. When you walk through these trials, when you walk through these hardships, I am with you. And we see this lived out in Scripture. One of the most poignant pictures we have of it comes in Daniel when the, the three Hebrew boy, men, young men, are in the, in the furnace, and we see the theophany, the appearance of God who is with them in flame, literally. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your, parents, uh, from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. In other words, wherever I go, you're there. The scriptures speak about the presence of God. I am with you. This is God's modus operandi, his mode of operation. This is who God is. He is present with his people. And Isaiah 43 is not just a cheap platitude, it's to say, Are you broken? Are you hurting? Do you feel the flames? Do you feel like you're beginning to sink in the waters? But be reminded in Christ this morning, you're not alone. God is with you. Your Redeemer, the one who saved you, is with you. When you walk through those things, and you will, He is with you. Oh, let us look to Noah, who kept Noah and the waters of flood. It was the Lord. The Lord had him build the ark. The Lord sealed him in there. The Lord was with him as the waters raged. The Lord was with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What is this reminding us of? What did, what did the four, or the three Hebrew boys say when they were getting ready to be thrown into the furnace? God will save us. And even if He doesn't, will not bow down. You know what they're telling the Babylonians at that moment? Your fires won't overcome us. They may kill our bodies, but Yahweh overcomes. Beloved of God, we overcome in Christ this morning. The cross is our guarantee that we overcome. When we, when we stand back and we look at the powers of our world, let it not become cliche when we say the, the powers of the world really are no match for God. And I don't mean, this is, that's also not a cheap thing to say. It is very real. Have you ever seen someone marriage, someone's marriage restored that you thought was impossible? Perhaps you sit here this morning, and, I, and I'll say this about myself. When I was growing up in Dothan, Alabama, people would say, oh, God may save some people, man, not Brad Williams. He's the worst. He's the worst of the worst. He's the, he's the guy you don't want your son to hang around with. And if God can save Brad Williams, God can save anybody. And I'm not just saying that. God, The power of God can overcome the world in every way. What the world can do, the world can hurt us. The world can make us feel its pain. The world can put us in positions that are uncomfortable. The world can cause us to have to endure hardship. But the world is no match for God the powers of the world, what can they take? Can they take your life? Yeah. Could they take your job? Sure. Could they take your reputation? Yes. Could your bank account be cleaned out? It sure could. What is the one thing that God gives that the world cannot take? It can't even touch. Real and true everlasting life. And it's scary. I don't want you to think that I'm over here itching for someone to take everything I have. I'm not. I don't want to lose what I have. I don't want my family to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to lose my livelihood. But yet those things are temporal. They will pass away anyway. But the one thing that's eternal, which is true in living life and hope, only comes in Christ and it can't be taken. What is the overarching truth of this passage? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This phrase, Holy One, is a favorite of Isaiah's. He uses this often. The reason he does is because he's he's creating a distinction between who God is and who we are. We are saints in the sense that we have been saved and made holy. God is the Holy One, (laughs) the Holy One. You and I are not the Holy One. We have been made holy. We are a holy people, a holy nation set apart to God. God is the Holy One, the one who is pure, the one who is perfect, the one who is supremely and uniquely fitted to be Savior. The only one who can save. Why? Because he's the only one who brings absolute holiness and perfection to the table. So what qualifies God as Savior is that he is the holy one. He is the Lord. He is God. Why does he talk about giving Egypt in exchange for his people? What I'm convinced that Isaiah is doing here is he's hearkening back to the Exodus. He's he, he's 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 hitting a note that Israelites would think of. So think of What is the grand picture in the Old Testament of God's salvation? It is the Red Sea. It is Moses and the Israelites coming to a body of water between the hammer and the anvil, and what are they going to do? They are trapped. There is no way out. And God splits the sea, brings them through it, closes in the sea over their captors, and, and sends them on to the promised land. So we think about what is the picture in the Old Testament that the people of God would, would kind of gird up their loins and harking back to it's that. So it's no wonder that Isaiah is pointing Israel back to the Exodus, saying, God is the one who rescued you from Egypt. God is the one who brought judgment against Egypt. God bought you out of there and gave you new life. Now, why mention Cush and Seba? For in the Old Testament way of thinking, you're talking about places who are far off. What is Isaiah saying there about God's character? That God will go to great lengths to rescue his people. He'll say this again by talking about gathering his people from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. God doesn't abandon you. That's the point. He doesn't abandon me. He doesn't abandon us. He will go to where his people are and rescue them. Why? Why does he do this? Very simply stated, verse 4, because, causal statement, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Beloved, I just stop right there and bask in the reality of that. Why does God do what he does Because the people of God, we as a body, we are precious in His sight. We are honored. He loves us. Why does God redeem and rescue and save? Because of His love for us. So when we look at why redemption, why salvation, it really culminates in the character of God, and that's that's all it needs to do. We don't need to try to add to it. We just need to simply let the truth of it stand that God, because of who God is, He saves. Where do we see this culminate most richly? Yeah, the Exodus is a a neat picture of God's salvation, but what is something greater than the Exodus in Scripture? We understand it's the cross, the ultimate place of salvation where God didn't just rescue bodies, He rescued souls. Where God didn't just deliver people from a nation, He delivered us from the power of sin and death. And so everything that Isaiah is talking about here will come to full fruition and culmination in the cross itself when Jesus will come incarnated, the true Emmanuel, and will deliver us from flame and flood by His own sacrifice. And so He says, do not fear or fear not. Why? Causal statement, because I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. Then of course he goes on. But why do we not fear? Well, I'm with you. Jesus said it this way, I will never leave you or forsake you. So when we talk about a confident hope, what is the basis of our confidence? It's this right here. For I am with you. I will be I will bring your offspring from the east. Do not fear. I will gather you. These are promises, beloved. These are promises from God. I will do this. I will do this. This is what I will do. God gathers His people, and He doesn't leave us to the world or to ourselves. Sometimes it may feel that way. I mean, sometimes it really may feel we are twisting alone. And this is why. Why do iconic passages like this mean so much? Because perhaps you feel that way right now, and this is the word of the Lord to you and to me, I am with you. I am with you. And we see it represented so beautifully in this table that Jesus says, I am with you to the point of death. I will die for you so that you may live with me. He speaks here of God gathering his people from east and west. So when we think about this, what is Isaiah reminding us that God, again, is personally involved in the lives of his people that he has called us by name, that personal touch. But in some senses, we are his people, so we're called by his name. He says as much in verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, these are the ones that he rescues, us, you, me. We are his own. We are created. This harkens back to verse 1, we are formed and made by the personal involvement of god in creation so this morning where does your worth and your value flow from where do they flow they don't flow in your occupation they don't flow in your social status they don't even flow in your in your a- academia they don't flow in your wit they don't flow in any other place our worth and value they come from the god that made us they flow uniquely from god so we are worth we are worthy we have worth we have value because of who God is and His creation of us. And so when we think about what is Isaiah laying out, we could go on and on and on about the different attributes of God that are here listed and to say what we can about God's willingness to go in flame and flood to rescue. But one of the things that I think that we need to walk away from this is the fact that what we're looking at on display this morning is God's compassion, and that compassion does save. That compassion does reach people who are broken and hurting and lost. But it gives us confidence to be holy. But I want to back up for a second. What's one point of application I could make here? i Just, just kind of coming to my mind now. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames will not be consuming You know why that's true? Because God is with us. Beloved of God, we are not God. We don't redeem people. We don't, we don't make atonement for anybody's sins. We can't do that. But you know what we can do? We can be willing to walk with our friends and loved ones, fellow believers who are in flame and flood and who are being consumed and drowning. Do you know what the human propensity is? is that when we see something like that going on, so often we keep our distance for one of a few reasons. One, they're just going through a time, they just, I don't want to embarrass them by inserting myself. That's one reason. A more selfishly motivated reason is we don't want to be stained by what they're going through. We want to make sure that we distance ourselves so that no one associates us with whatever flame or flood they're enduring. Or three, sadly, it's just not convenient right now. I have my own life. Let me encourage us as believers in the Lord to, be, to emulate our God and be present with God's people. We never know what word we might speak, what hug we might give, what scripture we might convey, what truth we might speak, what, what we might never say, but just be there, what that speaks to other people. You know why that's so important? Because God has done that for you when you were drowning in a sea of sin and being consumed by your own desires and passions, God rescued you. He says, I am with you. We're not gonna rescue everybody from every sin or from every hardship, and we can't be present for every hardship that everybody that we know is always walking through. But could we prayerfully consider how we might be present for some? You bet you we can. And that gets at the heart of God's love for us and how we convey That love to other people. So God's compassion it should give us confidence to be holy. That God has fought for us, so I should choose holiness. Right? That's one. God's compassion should give us confidence to walk with other people who are drowning, who who are being engulfed in flame. We need to be wise. We need to know our limitations. We need to recognize that sometimes we can only go so far, and that's it. I can't go any further. I can only do what I can do, but we need to do something. God loves us. He says, I am the Lord who created you, who formed you. Fear not. Why do we have to not be afraid, Isaiah? Because God has redeemed you. He's called you by name. You are his. And that is truth worth celebrating. And we're going to here in just a few minutes. We take the supper together. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word ministered to me. And I pray that it hits its mark with all of us, that we would be people who are drawn into its beauty and truth and the reality of it. Lord, that we would be a people who are drawn into the breadth and depth of just how rich it is, what it means that. You are the Lord who created us and who redeemed us, that you've called us by name, that we belong to you. Oh, Lord, may that ripple out. May that renew our minds and hearts. May that encourage our thinking and our living. Oh, God, may we live boldly for you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.